Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm co-host Sarah Whitmire. Today we're looking back at 2020 shows. We've covered COVID-19, community and state news, and much more. Tweet us at Noon Edition to share your memories of 2020 and what you think were some of its defining moments. Our first show discussing COVID-19 aired January 31st. At that point, there were more than 6,000 reported cases of the virus across the world. The virus had killed 132 people, all in China, and the U.S. had only five reported cases. Graham McKean, the Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University, and Dr. Tom Hersmalis, an MD at IU Health Southern Indiana physician specializing in infectious disease, joined us for the show and became regular guests throughout the year. It's definitely time for being more alert and more vigilant um, because of this uh, novel virus and all the things we're learning from it. In terms of, of how it's been for us personally, I mean, this is... Uh, pretty much all I've been doing for the last two weeks. And, and seeing uh, the blip come across, we, you know, public health is all about um, conducting surveillance. And that's one of the, the biggest things that we can do, especially in a global world when it comes to communicable and, and infectious disease. And so seeing this little blip um, on our epidemiological exchange network uh, over the holiday about an unknown pneumonia uh, of unknown source, potentially from an animal market, really seeming initially that it was pretty much strictly animal to human transmission, that piques your interest. And so we were watching that, it just a personal interest as well. Um, but, but continuing to watch that and see that escalate, it's, it's pretty much been in the forefront, um, really since I got back in the office on January 6th. And then uh, just about a week later, um, hearing the reports of cases quadrupling, the confirmation of human-to-human transmission, starting to see some of these imported cases, um, that's when our role at public health, at least within the Indian University system, was to alert our, our administration. Not a couple hours after sending that message uh, to the appropriate folks, uh, we had our first imported case in Washington state. Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since then, which now feels about uh, 30 days ago, I think that was only two weeks ago, um, we've been watching this very intensely. And so, yeah, we do need to be alert. Um, the, again, the, the immediate risk uh, is, is low to Indiana and, and to Bloomington, to Monroe County, and Indiana University. Uh, but we need to be on that heightened vigilant alert at any time um, when it's cold and flu season. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, you know, 15 million estimated cases so far of the flu this year. Uh, it's neurovirus season as well. And so that's kind of always our messaging in public health during this time of year. And so at this time, that, that, that continues uh, regardless of, of what's going on. But uh, in addition to that, as you said, there's so many unknowns. And so the more we can learn about it, um, and, and honestly, that's maybe one of the benefits of having cases here locally is now we can study it ourselves. When I say locally, I mean in the United States. So now we can study that ourselves, and that kind of help us uh, maybe develop treatments and, and options and learn things about it. I think the biggest news um, today, just in the last hour or so, was the, the head infectious disease doctor at the NIH confirming, uh, based on that New England Journal of Medicine article that came out last night, that uh, this can be uh, infectious prior to, to symptom onset. Mm-hmm. And so that really changes the game in terms of surveillance and contact tracing and really doing the, the epidemiological groundwork uh, to thwart that. And that can be done, uh, but, um, you know, I'm expecting uh, additional guidance from the CDC to help us uh, thwart that outbreak here in the, in the country. So that's a lot to unpack. And uh, Dr. Thomas Mollis is here. He's uh, an MD who specializes in infectious disease. So, you know, what's all that mean to you and to your patients? Well, from a, um, from a practical standpoint, we've dealt with these kinds of issues before. I mean, if you think back over the past, what, 18 years or so, we've had um, SARS, MERS, Zika, Ebola, and this novel coronavirus, and many of the public health measures that we would consider, isolating patients, quarantine, treatment, testing, uh, use of resources, uh, the things we're considering today are similar to what we've considered in the past. What we need is more information. 
that lets us know how to adapt what we've worked on in the past to this particular episode. Um, the things that I get concerned about are transmission, how readily is it transmitted, and this information that it can, might be transmitted asymptomatically or is, or is transmitted asymptomatically is big because with previous episodes like SARS, we could isolate people who are symptomatic. Now we have to think about what do we do about people who are just contacts. And so that transmission is, is key. The preliminary data I've seen suggests that the virus is more transmissible than, let's say, the flu but less transmissible to unvaccinated people than, say, would be whooping cough or something like that. So mm -hmm. that's significant. That has epidemic potential. Um, and then there's the question of severity. Well, how severe is it? If it's the same as a common cold, we don't have so much worry. But preliminary data from China, I think we're quoting mortalities around 2%. Yeah, it seems to be fluctuating between 2 and 3% case fatality rate so far. The difficulty with that is what is your numerator and denominator? We know how many people die, but if the number of cases is really way more than what we're detecting, it may be that mortality is not as high. But regardless, the mortality from the flu is less than 0.1%. So this is significant. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not as bad as SARS that we saw in 2003 that had about a 10% mm -hmm. or MERS that had, can have a very high mortality, mm -hmm. but still very worrisome in that, uh, in that regard. So a lot of issues to consider. Right. We, need, we need a little bit more information, I think, to know how to, how to proceed. That was a clip from our first show on COVID-19 in 2020. We did many more. One in April focused on what it was like to work in medicine during a pandemic. We spoke with doctors who just finished medical school, one of whom had had COVID earlier in the year. In the spring, medical students in their final semester were given the option to graduate a month early to join the healthcare workforce. My colleague, Bob Zaltzberg, opens with Jim Laughlin, an MD at IU Health Bloomington Hospital. Well, it's, it's uh, turned our <clears throat> daily workflow pretty much upside down. Um, I'm a pediatrician by training, and I'm also uh, the chief practice officer for our Southern Indiana Physician Group, which is our regional physician group for IU Health. And since this has started, we've had to dramatically change uh, uh, our workflow and workforce um, within our group. Uh, to increase capacity and change our capacity at the hospital for the, to accommodate COVID with our uh, intensive care physicians, our hospitalists in our emergency room. Um, as you probably are aware and people are aware in the region, uh, we've gone to almost 100% uh, virtual visits in our offices. So many of our office staff have had to be redeployed to do other work and work from home. Um, so that we can protect our, our workers and our, and our patients in our region. So it's been dramatically different. I want to talk with our, our two medical students who have just graduated, and they, they are going to be starting um, in, in uh, the practice earlier than they thought. So let's start with uh, Roshni Du about um, where, where do you think you're going to go? And, you know, what, what about starting early like this? Oh, hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Um, so as a, as a medical student now graduate, um, my experience is pretty like a, a lot of abrupt changes. Um, in the middle of March, we got suddenly pulled from our rotations um, in the same way that Dr. Laughlin was talking about to minimize our exposure, to minimize our exposing doctors and um, other healthcare staff. Um, then a few weeks later, we were given the opportunity to graduate early to um, help provide extra support with their response. Um, at that time, about a third of our class opted to do so. Um, and then were uh, graduated um, as of a week ago, became MDs. And um, then just a few days ago, um, became aware that not too many of us are actually needed, which is reassuring that um, in Indiana, at least the additional support um, is not required, at least at this time. So now in the meantime, I think uh, most of us who aren't working um, or who are just waiting for placement are getting ready 
and thinking about what our residencies will look like, which will be the next phase of our training. Um, for residency, um, depending on what specialty we've chosen will look very different for everyone. Um, people who are going into internal medicine fields or emergency medicine fields, they will be um, you know, directly working with COVID-19 patients, whereas um, people who have chosen specialties that may not be providing direct care may see the next phase of their training um, start remotely or uh, develop very differently like Dr. Lovelin was alluding to. Let me ask before I go on to uh, David Vega, I want to ask you first, I mean, what, how, how prepared were you for something like this? That is, you know, had you, had this been part of your medical school training, um, how surprised were you when this coronavirus actually started hitting people in the United States? Um, that's a, it's an interesting question. We'd certainly heard about coronavirus. We learned about it in our microbiology class. The novel coronavirus, of course, is not something that anyone was prepared for. No one knew exactly what this particular viral strain looked like and what its symptoms were. And we don't even know exactly what it will look like going forward and what the manifestations might be um, for people who are recovering or what the complications might be in the future. Um, so I, I, I don't think that we were prepared for this particular um, strain, but certainly we're prepared to take care of patients. We're prepared to take care of the complications of a virus. Um, that, you know, that means managing patients who have respiratory problems, talking to families, um, providing support in whatever capacity is necessary. Those things, of course, every clinician is prepared to do, regardless of what the disease process actually is. Right. Thank you, doctor. Um, Dr. David Vega, um, could you talk about your experience? Because you actually had the uh, virus, correct? Yes, correct. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, so again, like uh, Dr. Dute was saying, uh, we had learned a bit about the virus um, and it, it was very interesting because in the beginning they had pulled all of us from rotations and wanted us to have as minimal expo exposure as possible. Um, and I think really just regulations changed, you know, day by day, week by week and seeing that they saw a need for us in, in the work, work fields. Um, I, I was motivated to help out um, especially since, like you said, I, I did end up having uh, COVID back in early March uh, thankfully, I'm not recovered, um, but it does give me, um, you know, just based off, you know, uh, the immunological principles that we know so far confer some sort of immunity to the virus. Um, so it made me feel a little less anxious about entering, a, um, you know, a field right now where we might be exposed to obviously potential COVID-19 patients. Um, so right now, I, I just finished my first shift on Wednesday. Um, we'll be working for the next few weeks as well. Um, so we'll, we'll see where that leads us. So the, uh, the experience of going, you know, so quickly from medical school and before you, before you knew it into, uh, you know, a clinical rotation, was that, uh, you know, how, how difficult was that to do to sort of change your mindset? It all happened very quickly. <laughs> and uh, it's, Interesting because at the end of fourth year, starting intern year, there's, you know, you go from being a medical student to being a doctor and nothing really changes in terms of your knowledge base. It's really just a period of time. And everyone says intern year is the hardest year because you're learning how to kind of incorporate all these scientific principles that you learned by the medical school, incorporating that into being a practicing physician. So there's always that bit of a learning curve. I think for, for me, it's just happened to be a lot sooner than later, um, instead of having a month or two month break before starting residency. Um, it was just more of a, an opportunity that arose and just decided to step up to the challenge and being able to help out where needed. That was a clip from an April show about what it's like to work in medicine during a pandemic. Next up, we're playing a clip from a September show, talking with local health officials and IU's Director of Mitigation and Surveillance, Dr. Aaron Carroll, about community spread of COVID-19 and university testing plans. Bob Zaltzberg asks Monroe County Health Administrator for an update on COVID-19 numbers in Monroe County. Today's positivity rate 
Yes. Is that, was that the question? Yes. Those just popped up at, at noon. So today's um, all tests uh, was 8.2%. Um, I think that people have have been watching and part of that going up. And it, we know that Indiana University is doing a wonderful job at, at really robust testing on, on campus and people affiliated with the university. And as numbers come in and different systems are put in place to merge that information, um, certainly the universities across the state, I think that there was some um, challenges uh, between uh, labs reporting and the state system getting those put in. That is being corrected and we saw some of that correction today. Um, I, I don't know what all of those labs were that, that they were encountering that with, but we did have conversations with the state uh, for a while, but certainly this week to really address that. And so I think that we'll continue to see some changes there, but it was 8.2% today. Okay. All right. Thank you. So Dr. Carroll, can you give us uh, your perspective, give us an overview of what you're seeing in the numbers as it pertains to the university? Yeah, I mean, positivity rate is is a metric, um, but to, to, to say that it's like the most important or the one that we should follow, it's important to understand that what's really important there is not just the, the numerator, but also the denominator, um, because of course it's the number of cases and the number of tests. And what can really influence that is not just the number of cases, which is of course the number of infections, but also how many tests are you running? Um, and the positivity rate is gonna be very different in, in, in different populations. For most of Indiana, the positivity rate that we're looking at is of symptomatic or people we believe to be at high risk because the vast majority of people who are getting tests are being referred to a test by a physician uh, or who are concerned that they have been exposed and are therefore at higher risk and are running out to get a test on their own. That's most of the tests. So seeing a positivity rate of you know, 8% there is you're saying, okay, that's in a high risk population. But what we're doing at IU, the vast majority of tests that I'm running are on asymptomatic people. Uh, we're doing somewhere between 10 and 15,000 tests a week on people who are not symptomatic. And, you know, depending upon our populations, we're seeing very low. And most of our regional campuses, our positivity rate is zero. Um, at IUPUI, the positivity rate is significantly below 1%. In the Greek population, you know, in week two, I think it was at 25%, which is horrifyingly high, but they're a very high risk population. Um, in amongst the dormed population of Bloomington, on the other hand, it was low around 3%, um, which of course concerns us because that's a whole prevalence and 3% is still higher than we'd like to see. But there's a difference between being concerned about a prevalence of 3% or a positivity of 3% in a dorm population and saying, okay, 5% in uh, Indiana would be great. Um, that's because we're thinking it's mostly symptomatic for Indiana and I'm knowing it's almost entirely asymptomatic in the Bloomington dorm. So it, it's just important to know what we're testing. And, and Penny is right. There have been some difficulties in how our tests are being reported to the state. Um, and that's partially because how the lab um, that we've been contracting with has been reporting it. It appears that they reported the positives much earlier than the negatives. But it's important to understand that globally, we're gonna be driving the rate of Monroe County positivity rate down um, because again, we're doing so many tests in asymptomatic people that even when we're concerned, it's lower than 8%. Um, our testing rates overall have been significantly lower than 8% in mitigation testing. And so uh, as the number of cases may still be rising, the positivity rate could still be lowering because we're testing a different group of people, which makes just using the positivity rate problematic if you're only caring about one metric. Hey, I think I understand all that. So, oh, good. Good so, so, so Dr. Carroll, are there other, is the university measuring um, other large um, apartment complexes? I mean, do you, are you able to pinpoint any other hotspots among students? Because there is communal living in places off so, campus. Yep, we, we divide, the buckets we put people in for the most part are, um, are in each campus, employees, faculty, and staff, 
Um, we put buckets of off-campus students, buckets of on-campus students, and at Bloomington, we're also we're also looking at Greek because that's been a significant predictor. Um, we are not yet looking at off-campus apartment buildings. Our you know our data on where off-campus students live is not precise enough or accurate enough to get that yet, although we're certainly working towards that. So I can tell you, for instance, that in, in Bloomington's campus, um, our dorm population uh, is sitting at a slightly lower positive positivity rate than our off-campus non-Greek housed population. Um, but our Greek off-campus students are significantly higher than our non-Greek off-campus students and our Greek house students in general have been much higher than any other group. Uh, employees, faculty, and staff have been almost non-existent cases in that we've measured. And so it's it's different. Can I tell you which, you know, which apartment building off-campus might have a higher population? No, not yet. Again, we're okay. working towards that level of precision, but we're monitoring all of these groups so that we can figure out where we need to focus in the future and determine what measures we might need to take to make things safer. That was a clip from September talking about COVID-19 in the community. We dedicated a lot of our coverage to following local action to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But 2020 was also an election year. We had political experts and lawmakers on in November to share their thoughts on how the election would affect Hoosiers. Senator Greg Taylor, the head of the Indiana Democratic Caucus, talks about what results mean for Democrats. First of all, I, I think it was great that we had higher voter turnout in the country, let alone the state of Indiana that we've ever had. That being said, uh, I would have to also agree with Brandon that there was a uh, performance that as, as a Democrat, we probably need to uh, rethink how we do our uh, campaigns. But that being said, we have an opportunity as a state of Indiana uh, that we're going to be redrawing the districts. Uh, one of the components of losing a district is the fact that uh, that we have districts that have been drawn that way. Um, not saying that Republicans were the only one to do it. Democrats did it in the past, and uh, I think it's it's time for a new system to be put in place so that we do have some parity and we do have ideas that can be heard from uh, each side of the aisle. Uh, no one, and I mean no one, Democrat or Republican, should be able to make uh, laws for the state of Indiana with no input from the other side of the aisle. And that's the situation that we're in. Uh, I've been in the Senate since 2008. And when I started, uh, there were 17 Democrats in the Senate. At one point, we were down to nine. We chipped away at that, and we're down, we're up to 11 now. Uh, but you know, until we take a serious look at how we draw maps in Indiana, you can expect this to continue for at least <laughs> another decade. All right, Senator Bray, you can, you're batting cleanup on this question. So what, what's, your, okay. what's your key takeaway? Well, I, I, a couple observations and then maybe a comment on what uh, Senator Taylor just, uh, just said. But I want to also say thank you for having me on. Excited to be here and uh, looking forward to the program. And uh, just as Professor Wilson said, I too want to uh, parrot the idea that the voter turnout, frankly, is exciting. You know, as a candidate, when you're out there and you're trying to get everyone's attention and uh, hoping to come to vote for you, it's just nice to see um, uh, the heavy turnout because people are paying attention. And this obviously is very, very important. I certainly am convinced that it is. So happy to see, happy to see that turnout. I think one of the really interesting things, obviously, it was a pretty good year for Republicans here in the state of Indiana. And um, but, you know, it's it's uh, we, we've seen this nationally. Uh, the, the polling is, is pretty tricky to follow these days. We uh, did our own polling as, as a Senate on some of our local more competitive seats. And um, as we as we uh, did the polling, it looked like some of those races were very, very close. And at the election day, it turned out that they weren't really as close as we thought. Some of them now we, we lost one seat this year, obviously, but but. Um, so for whatever reason, nationally and locally here in the state of Indiana, that polling has been um, a little bit problematic, and there are probably a lot of different opinions on the reason for that. I'm not smart enough to know exactly what they are, but but it was um, uh, tricky to, to kind of figure out, and as you're trying to plan campaigns, that makes it a bit complicated. 
Uh, one thing that Senator Taylor indicated about uh, the uh, um, though the minor- majority of the minority and and, and uh, the blaming that on the districts, and I don't I don't know that that's entire entirely fair or even quite fair at all. Actually, when you when you look across the state of Indiana after this most recent election, there are almost 90% of the county commissioners in the counties across the state of Indiana that are Republican, meaning 10% are Democrat. Now, you know, the Senate majority is about 80 to 20, just a little bit less than that at this point because the Democrats have 11. And But when you look at all statewide office holders are Republican, almost 90% of the county commissioners I don't know what the percentage of county sheriffs across the state are, but it's it's certainly over 80 percent that are Republican. And so you really can't blame those on districts because they're either statewide or county. And um, I think at some point you just have to realize that uh, Indiana is a fairly, fairly red state. All right. I want to get some uh, other feedback to that. So uh, Laura Wilson and Brandon Smith, both of you. Um, you know, study politics and how important is redistricting this year in terms of how Indiana is going to look for the next 10 years. Um, Dr. Wilson, let's start with you. Sure. Well, it is incredibly important. Uh, and when you look at the redistricting, uh, the drawing of the district lines, of course, uh, part of it comes into question who does that. Uh, there's also the question of the process. And I encourage just as a sidebar for folks that are really into this, the National Conference of State Legislatures, uh, ncsl.org, has great comparisons for all 50 states. And you can see how different states do it. In many states, it is the state legislature drawing the district lines. Um, but you have states like Iowa, where they have a, a nonpartisan commission. And yes, there are people from both parties that, that participate in it, but it's nonpartisan in that you also have people that aren't actually partisan. And it's uh, comprised of a wider group of people. There is the question, of course, that who does it, but but to the larger impact uh, issue here, like what, what does it matter? It matters quite a bit because we want to see competitive districts. Right? In, in the ideal democracy, in the, in the interest of elections, and I mentioned turnout earlier, it, people are going to be involved, people are going to be engaged if they think that their vote matters. And the reality is if you have overwhelmingly red or blue districts, right? And there's all different types of gerrymandering. We could talk about cracking and packing, splitting votes, diluting votes. Uh, But with any way you do this, if it's biasing one party or another, it's ultimately to the disadvantage of voters. Because if, if I live in a district that I know is overwhelmingly gonna benefit one party, now, if I like that party, that's great. Cool. They're, they're my party. But I'm also not going to be very inclined to vote because they don't need me, right? Why waste my time? I'll just enjoy my Tuesday. And likewise, on the other side, uh, if it's the party I don't like, right? Well, that stinks. I don't like it. But also, why be inclined to vote? Because it, there, it's not going to change things. Right? So if you have those districts that aren't competitive, I think ultimately, it's not even just that they depress voter turnout, but the interests. Right. And then and then there's the larger question, too, of are they representative of the constituents in that district? Yes, the district may be overwhelmingly red or blue. But is that is that truly representative of the people within the district and the state as a whole? And so I, I think there's so much there's so many things important and worth considering here. The impact of, for the next 10 years, what our priorities, what our policies are and um, how much power parties have it, it. It really does impact, I think, almost every aspect, really and truly, of the election. That was from a show in November on election results in Indiana. Here's a clip from an early December show discussing rising COVID-19 numbers before the holidays and much-anticipated plans for a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Cynthia Brown, an IU School of Medicine associate professor, is a site principal investigator for the AstraZeneca vaccine trials taking place in Indianapolis. She shared a bit about how those trials work. So... We are working with about 100 other sites across the country to enroll individuals in this uh, vaccination study. And there's also several sites in South America as well. The reason why you need so many sites for a trial like this is the goal is to get 44,000 individuals in the United States and South America enrolled into this vaccine trial. And at Indiana University, we have a goal to get between 1,000 and 1,500 individuals. The AstraZeneca vaccine is uh, probably the third of the vaccines that are being um, supported through COVID vaccination to be this 
far along. Um, <clears throat> this vaccine has also already been investigated in the United Kingdom and uh, Brazil, so in other places in South America as well. And some of the preliminary results from those trials uh, look positive um, as well. And AstraZeneca is looking to potentially get um, approval in the United Kingdom soon, but we will be a little bit farther behind because our trials are still ongoing in the United States. Now, this trial was was halted briefly, and, and then I think you it was halted in September, and then you restarted in October. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And, and this is a really great example of the FDA doing exactly what you want the FDA to do through the course of a vaccine trial and study. Um, <clears throat> there was an event and a subject in the United Kingdom that the FDA wanted to take a closer look at and to decide that this was a safe vaccine to go forward. Because I think in all of these vaccine trials, um, of course we want an effective vaccine, <clears throat> excuse me, but you also first and foremost have to protect the safety of first the participants and then the general population. And after the FDA took a look at very extensive data, they decided that they did not feel that individuals participating in the trial would be at increased risk. <clears throat> okay, well, we'll get back to you in a minute. I have several more questions about the uh, the trial, um, but we've had a question come in already that I, I think this one is probably for Pen for Penny to answer. Um, she's This question says, is the spread at a place where we should be doing a self-imposed self isolation period similar to how we all behave during the state's lockdown earlier in the pandemic? That is an excellent question. And I would say that for some people, absolutely. And it's, it certainly would not hurt. Um, I think that from what we've learned and what we know now versus then, um, you know, we don't want to have to go back to any kind of closures or stay at home orders if we can avoid that. We know that there are other impacts that that has on individuals and our economy and livelihoods and all those things as well. So what we would like to do is strike a, a good balance, but certainly uh, I like the slogan that Colorado used. I think um, it was Colorado and it's safer at home, that we are safer at home if we're not going out and about, a, you know, without need. Now I say that, and I also wanna point out that what we are really seeing in terms of spread is among families and households and those kind of what people think of as their small those small bubbles and they're not necessarily as small as they thought they were so i might there's a graphic out there that's very good and i might think my bubble of people is six but if each person in that bubble has another bubble of six it doesn't take long before my exposure grows and it, it's just a reminder, again, that when we are around individuals that um, are outside of our immediate household, we really need to be masking, maintaining that six foot distance, that those things are extremely important to do. But certainly if people can stay home and if people are at high risk, if they have underlying medical conditions uh, that put them at greater risk for hospitalizations and uh, then absolutely stay at home if you can. One of the things that we are seeing right now and have been seeing for the past several weeks is an increase in our deaths and the frequency that people are dying. And that is absolutely something that we do not, we don't want people to be infected, but we certainly want people who are infected to, to recover quickly and well. We do not want to see people die from this infection. That was from our December show talking about vaccine trials. Next up, we've got a clip from a recent show on federal executions. Federal executions resumed this year under the Trump administration after a 17-year pause, even as national support of the death penalty has waned. When this show aired, Brandon Bernard had just been executed the day before after requesting a last-minute stay. 
Another execution of Alfred Bourgeois was set for that evening. Robert Dunham with the Death Penalty Information Center opens the program to give us some context. Then Angela Moore, a former federal prosecutor on Brandon Bernard's case, joins us, sharing her thoughts about why her opinion on his conviction has changed. Well, what we are seeing here um, is something that is historically an aberration. Um, for 17 years, the federal government didn't carry out any executions. Uh, and then when it started this year, uh, it began the executions at a time that all the states in the U.S. had halted executions because of the pandemic. Uh, there will be, if the execution today goes forward, uh, 10 federal civilian executions this year, uh, and there will be uh, seven executions by states. That will be the first time in American history uh, going back to the start of the country, uh, in which the federal government has carried out more civilian executions than the states have. Uh, it also uh, is uh, historically aberrational in, in, the, uh, in another sense. The, uh, uh, the 10 executions this year uh, are more than in any other year in the 20th or 21st centuries. You've got to go back to the 1800s, 1896, uh, before we had any other uh, presidency with double-digit executions um, in a single year. And the six executions that are scheduled for the transition period uh, is also something that has never occurred in U.S. history. Uh, the, last, um, the last transition period execution uh, was more than a century ago, uh, and the last time there was more than one in a single presidency uh, was uh, in the 1880s. The most ever were five during Chester A. Arthur's uh, administration during the transition uh, between his time in office uh, and, um, and Grover Cleveland's presidency. So we're talking about something that is really historically out of step um, with anything in American history at a time in which uh, there were fewer state executions uh, than any period in the last 37 years and fewer death sentences imposed uh, than in any year since the death penalty came back in the 1970s. So to, to look at it um, on the surface, it appears that the difference is uh, President Trump and his administration. Is there anything more to it than that? I think that that is it, um, pure and simple. Uh, this, uh, this administration has um, deviated from traditional American norms in a lot of ways. And the politicization of the Justice Department, uh, I think, is one of the more critical ways. I think you've got to read the, um, the policies with respect to capital punishment in conjunction with the uh, use of force against peaceful protesters uh, and separating families at the border and putting children in cages. These are things that, um, that we, just, uh, we, we just don't see. Uh, and the, the, the choice to carry out uh, executions during a pandemic uh, in which more than a quarter million Americans have already been killed uh, and in which we already, and with respect to which we already know um, COVID-19 has been transmitted. Uh, one of the members of the first execution team uh, had, uh, had COVID-19. Eight members of the execution team contracted COVID uh, after the execution of, of Orlando Hall and Hall's religious advisor uh, also was sickened. Uh, by the disease. Uh, and with the scheduled execution of Lisa Montgomery, uh, two of the defense lawyers uh, were required to travel from Tennessee to, uh, to visit her in Texas because of her mental instability and severe mental illness uh, and to try to explain what was going on and to help prepare uh, her clemency petition. And they both contracted uh, cases of COVID that were so serious that the federal court stayed her execution uh, from this week and the federal government re uh, rescheduled it uh, for the beginning of next year. So I want to bring in um, both George Hale and Adam Pinsker. You, you have both witnessed executions. George, I believe you were there last night for that execution, were you not? I was, and I'm still in Terre Haute right now. So can you talk a little bit about what, what, what goes into being a witness, please? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, you know, it's actually like a, you know, it's a very controlled process. Um, obviously, it's a really secure facility. Um, but uh, they have usually, a, since I've been, been here, five or six um, reporters. Uh, usually they choose people from, um, or, you know, organizations that have uh, 
you know, a wide reach, like a broadcast or a newswire. Um, and then uh, they have a special chamber that they they take uh, they take the people to. Um, and then there's a there's a room for the media with the glass facing the um, the inmate. Um, which is separate from some of the you know, from different rooms that also face the same spot. And uh, yeah, they, obviously these are carried out by lethal injection. So that's how it's done. So can you talk a little bit about uh, Brandon Bernard and what, what exactly happened last night? Yeah, this was actually a really interesting um, um, experience. Uh, this is the third time I've witnessed an execution, but um, this is the only time that I've ever um, uh, seen the, the inmate just, uh, make eye contact, you know, acknowledge the, the reporters in the room, nod his, head at the, nod his head at us, you know, and sort of give us a sign that he was aware of why we were there and what we were doing. Um, it was interesting, too. He, he seemed to really be at peace. That, that I didn't get the impression from the, the prior two. Uh, he apologized uh, to the victims. It was primarily, his last words were primarily just to um, apologize to the family of the people that um, died um, when he and another a man named Christopher Vialva were involved in a carjacking that resulted in someone else actually, but someone else shooting at least two people in Texas. Um, yeah, and uh, he, he actually, there was a, some hope from supporters because um, Kim Kardashian had taken up the cause and the last minute Alan Dershowitz and a few other Trump supporters joined on into his legal team. Um, but yeah, in the end, Trump decided not to intervene. In this case, I mean, a lot of the reason that, uh, or part of the reason that people were so interested in trying to intervene was because um, Brandon Bernard was only 18 years old when this crime occurred, and he wasn't the one that pulled the trigger. Isn't that correct? Yeah, that's right. Even the government, you know, the, the, you know not even the government claims that he really um, contributed to, you know, the shooting at all. Uh, he wasn't even there, actually, when the, the couple was kidnapped. Um, what he did later was he set the car on fire at the, you know, upon the instructions of the sort of higher ranking member of the gang, if we're calling it a gang, um, named Christopher Vialva. Um, the government can like sort of, uh, they, they claim that the, there was some sort of soot in the lungs of one of the two victims, which indicated that maybe one of them was still alive um, when the car was set on fire. And so uh, Bernard's involvement, I guess, in setting the car on fire would be why he you know, could technically be charged with murder. Now, we are going to be joined by Angela Moore, a former federal prosecutor who was involved in the uh, case of Brandon Bernard. But um, Angela Moore, you've had uh, a, lot, a lot of time since 1999, and you've had some, you're, you've, your mind has changed a little bit. Can you just explain, you know, your involvement in this case and how, how your thoughts have changed? Thank you for having me, and thank you for addressing this very important issue, how I was involved is after Mr. Bernard and Vialva were convicted, and as y'all know, they were tried in a joint trial, which I think was one of the main problems uh, in this trial. Uh, and so after he was convicted and Mr. Vialva were convicted, I handled the first level of appeal uh, for the federal government. That's when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. And so my job was to make sure that the convictions uh, were affirmed on appeal. And I was successful. They were affirmed. And they've been affirmed each step along the way, unfortunately. Now, after this case, and but not just because of this case, but after this uh, case uh, and because of others, I felt I just did not want to serve uh, the community in that way. And I, I left and entered private practice and became the first public defender in San Antonio and ran that office. And I've been in private practice for several years. And having matured as a human being, I'm 57 now. It's been 18 years since I worked on this case. You know, I'm a different person. And obviously, Brandon Bernard was also. Um, I've looked at the disparities that we've already talked about here today. Um, they are rampant. So the problems I see with the whole legal system, and in particular this case, um, and, and I think the denial uh, of his stay last night was just criminal. I really do. Um, this, this is a case we weren't just 
trying to save a life because we don't believe in the death penalty, which where I stood as well. But this was a case that legally had new evidence. There were problems in the case. There was misconduct on the part of the government, which, of course, none of us, you know, on appeal knew at the time because we have to rely on what we call the cold record, what happened in the courtroom. No, I'm, I'm just going to ask you if you could to I'm really interested to, to hear more about um, your change of mind from, you know, from being a prosecutor who was uh, responsible for making sure that that the uh, the federal case against Brandon Bernard was upheld to someone who just does not believe he deserved to be executed last night at all. Well, over these last, let's say, 18 years, um, you know, I questioned the efficacy of the death penalty the whole time I was a prosecutor. And when I was a federal prosecutor on this case, I had only been a prosecutor. I was a state prosecutor and then a federal prosecutor. And I, I think that causes tunnel vision and there's a desensitization of prosecutors where we are molded. Uh, I say we, when I was a prosecutor, we are molded to look at defendants as not human beings, that they are them and we are us. And that capital punishment is really a form of community self-defense is how it's rationalized. But as I've explained, you know, over the years, I have seen the racial disparity that has been applied to young black males and People would always call it playing the race card or, you know, this, this, you know, made up sort of reasons. No, it's real. It's real. And now we know it's real. It's on videos from cell cameras. It's, you know, people are marching in the streets about it and it's real. And then we see the privileged people um, who sit in judgment of this, and I was really disappointed in the Seventh Circuit, a 5-4 ruling denying the state. So one human being with a robe got to decide that Brandon Bernard got killed last night. One person. And how fair is that? There's no justice in capital punishment. And I truly believe in all my heart that the Bagley's Mr. and Mrs. Bagley, who were the victims in this case, would not have wanted anyone executed for this crime. I believe that with all my heart. And having represented human beings for all these last years has completely changed my worldview and my view as the role of a prosecutor and, and what my role as defending rights are. Um, you know, we're always faced with these questions. How do you defend those people? I get that all the time. And I explain to people that, first of all, this is a human being. Secondly, the rights that I am fighting for are yours. They're not just this individual. They're yours. But individuals, you know, laypersons, don't want to believe that the system is broken. They don't want to believe that. But my point of view I've been using as my mantra is the system isn't broken. It was never meant to work. And that is the prosecution is designed to get a conviction. That is how the rules of evidence are applied. That is how the case law has been interpreted for decades now. It is to get a conviction at all costs and to uphold it. I want to move on to one other case that I want to make sure we talk about a little bit today, and it's the case of Lisa Montgomery, who is awaiting execution. And Adam and George, you've been doing extensive reporting on this case for a documentary that uh, WTIU has already aired one time. Um, could you talk about the Lisa Montgomery case? Let's start with, with Adam. I mean, what, what makes this an interesting case? I'll just mute it. Sorry. On the surface, the last time a uh, woman was executed by the federal government, it was 1953. And that um, there are similar parallels that that um, defendant 
was also involved in kidnapping a child, but there's, there's a difference in the fact that that woman kidnapped a, a grown child. Lisa Montgomery was convicted of crossing state lines and killing a woman, Bobby Jo Stinnett, in northwest Missouri uh, with the intention of cutting her eight-month-old, uh, eight at that point, almost a month-to-be-born baby out of her womb, which she did, uh, and took it over to her hometown in Kansas. Within a day, investigators found the baby, and the baby survived and is doing very well. Um, but uh, one of the other, other side of it is that uh, Lisa Montgomery suffered extreme, extreme uh, physical and mental abuse, sexual abuse, uh, was raped uh, numerous times when she was uh, a preteen and into being a teenager, was uh, sexually assaulted by her stepdad. And, and um, again, this is a situation where, you know, her um, trial lawyers did not get a chance to present or just for whatever reason did not properly present that case. And now the appellate lawyers or they have been trying to uh, to to present it to uh, the jury. But like Mr. Dunham was saying or to the appeals court, um, it, it seems like the precedence has been that they don't get a second bite of the apple. George, what what strikes you about this case? Yeah, I mean, Adam did a good job just summarizing it. And I know we don't have a ton more time, but um, it really, to me, the 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 things that that are so different about this case is that um, she's severely mentally ill, and you know, and she's facing execution. Um, it's a little, I think it's a little bit different than what Robert was talking about, like with Alfred Bourgeois, who might you know have a, a low IQ. Um, Lisa Montgomery is is psychotic. I mean, she like her, she has actual diagnoses of dissociative disorder um, and you know and other disorders, and they they think that that could be the result of a, a combination of factors, including head trauma, um, but but probably you know directly related to the unrelenting abuse she suffered as a child. I could think I could hear Adam struggling to find the right words. I think that I am too, after reading all these, you know, hundreds of pages of reports. Um, she was sex trafficked by her own family from from childhood onward and ended up marrying her stepbrother. Um, and um and you know supposedly he he continued some of that violence. Um yeah, so anyway, so you know it's the question is I think um, not whether or not she um, is innocent of this crime, which she, she certainly, you know, has confessed to doing, but that, you know, it, are we really going to execute someone who is this mentally ill and who has suffered so much trauma already? You know, it's, that's the question. That was a clip from a recent show we did on the death penalty. And that's all the time we have for today. For producer Binta Boothier and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Sarah Whitmire. Have a happy new year. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.